So there's been a, a lot of focus on this. It was also done in the nick of time before the Australian federal election was called because free trade agreements require executive power to be um, signed. So it had to be done before the election was called and we went into caretaker mode. So there's been a lot of commentary about this and people saying, well, what's in it? What's in it for me? How's this going to change things? Will it move the dial? Um, what I really wanted to do was not to necessarily focus on this bilateral free trade agreement, which um, for trade nerds like me are very exciting, but for most normal human beings are extraordinarily dry and boring topics. Um, but to instead like try and put this thing in a story of Australia-India economic relations more broadly. Um, how did we get to this point? Why did we need an FTA? What's this going to change? And what's the future going to look like? So to really try and contextualise some of what we've seen happening, and then also have used that as a bit of a guide for the future and what we're going to be doing next. Um, you know, it's really nice to see Nashi Chowdhury, who's going to be the WA Trade Commissioner to India and the Gulf here with us tonight, just before she goes off in a couple of weeks' time. Um, so hopefully afterwards we can have a good discussion about what that future agenda needs to look like. Now, after a decade, we finally got the bloody free trade agreement in place. And I'll start with the observation that for a very long time, there's pretty much been a situation of what you could kindly call benign neglect in the Australia-India economic relationship. Um, and to, to try and make this a story, you know, this we've seen a really long trajectory in Australia going back probably about two generations of Australia reorienting its economic relationships away from the old world. So Britain, Europe, the former colonial powers, which is where settler white Australia came from, towards newer economic partners in the Indo-Pacific region. Um, you know, this started with Japan in the 1960s and the 1970s, um, particularly which was driven by iron ore out of the Pilbara that was uh, transformative for Western Australia and Perth. Um, and after that relationship was built, we just have seen Australia over successive decades basically layering on additional major transformative regional economic partners. Um, so Korea and Taiwan follow in the 1980s, um, a number of Southeast Asian relationships in the 1990s. And of course, we then had a big reorientation towards China just after around the turn of the 21st century, which has drove the most recent mining boom that has again retransformed Western Australia and Perth. Um, and the interesting thing is about how Australia has done this, this pivot. And now about three quarters of our trade is done with regional partners. Um, and that's down from before the 1960s with Japan, practically none. So we've gone from being an ec economically part of Europe and America to economically being a part of Asia in the space of two generations. Um, I think there'd be very few countries in the world that have reoriented themselves so dramatically. Um, but we've had a way to do it. And we can refer to this as a kind of trusted playbook for Australia. Um, and what we've always used in all of those relationships has started effectively with the mining and resource and energy sectors. Um, this was something that Australia had significant amounts of and industrialising economies in Asia needed them at different times in their industrialisation path. So we'd start with a trade and investment relationship built around with Japan, it was coal and iron ore. Um, and we would use that, which would be something that would be a big, massive industry. It would employ a lot of people. It would attract billions of dollars of investment in and generate billions of dollars of exports out. And that kind of produced the ballast in the economic relationship that then other sectors of the Australian economy could tag onto. So you would have a deep relationship. There'd be lots of corporate knowledge in Australia about Japan and in Japan about Australia because of that resource trade and that that would spill over into getting agriculture doing services doing technology more recently even education which was the big australian export success story of the early 2000s um, but the the keystone in that building so if you look at these trade relationships they now look diverse but it starts 
with Australia sport exporting resources to an industrialising partner. Um, India's never been part of this story. Um, it's uh, We have never seen a significant increase in Australia-India economic relations, so it's yet to be added to the end of the list. Um, I've just got up there the, the chair of Australia's two-way trade with, with India. That sits at about 3%. Um, a lot of people think that's scandalous given how big India is and how close we are sharing a maritime, effectively sharing an ocean. Um, and the only changes in that chart actually happened in 2009 and 2018. That, that The movement in that chart's driven by coal prices. So when coal prices go up, we do more trade. When they come back down, it goes back down to a, you know, an average long-term level of about 25 going back for a long time. So it's pretty clear that that's flat, nothing interesting is happening, it's not growing. Um, why? In principle, everything that helped drive Australia's relations with other partners in the Indo-Pacific region should theoretically apply to India. And if you read a lot of commentary, particularly from people in Australia that boosted the importance of this relationship and been talking it up recently, this is the kind of script they go to to explain why we have to find India economically now. Um, it's certainly, a, I think everybody knows, it's a very large economy and it's growing at a fantastical rate. Um, prior to COVID, you know, high single digits GDP growth every year. Um, and given the size of its population, it's going to be the second largest economy in Asia and probably the third largest economy in the world by 2030 or 2040. So we are talking a global economic giant. In the next in a generation's time, India is going to be a sizable and large player that it's really too hard for Australia to ignore. Um, India is also qualitatively going through some of the same shifts that drove our previous um, Asian relationships. So an uptick in industry, uh, particularly heavy industry, shipbuilding, steelmaking, and the manufacturing sectors that come off the back of that. Also being driven by the massive rate of urbanisation you're seeing in some of India's mega cities, which are of a scale and density that kind of terrifies me as a boy who grew up in country New South Wales. Um, and so that's as, we, as we've seen in China, as we've seen in other Southeast Asian cities in the past. So the idea is, well, that's going to mean that they're going to need our stuff to, to build all of that. Um, the old shibboleth about a rapidly growing middle class that's going to have demand for high value Australian products, particularly proteins um, and also horticulture products, even wine perhaps. Um, but probably most importantly, and this is the one that stands out for India, is a really strong bilateral political relationship. Um, historically very strong and as I think many of us in the room tonight will know has just gone forwards in leaps and bounds over the last five years um, in terms of political engagement, defence engagements, diplomatic alignments um, and interestingly that's one that India has uniquely compared to our other relationships. Um, when Australia and Japan started their relationship in the 1960s economics did the leading um, the political relationship was actually not very strong given the wartime legacy. And so we had to start with economics to then get the politics and the diplomacy working. Um, so too has that been the case with China, and we know that now. Um, whereas India, it's the other way around. We've got the politics, we've got the relationship, right? Let's just find a way we can trade and invest with each other. So in theory, it should be, should be straightforward. But in practice, it hasn't worked out like that. Um, and one of the big reasons is there is just a lack of complementarity between Australian and India's econom economies. And this comes to down to the fact that India does not need the mineral resources that Australia exports in the way that other countries in the region have. Um, India has an iron ore mining industry. It has a coal mining industry, and it's not a major importer of uh, LNG or gas. Um, so what that means is that keystone that we used in all the previous buildings in the region, we don't have that one there. So we don't have the first block to lay down in an economic relationship. 
Um, there's also some pretty high levels of Indian protectionism in a lot of the other sectors in which Australia and India trade, often very high tariffs or quotas or customs barriers that make it very hard for Australian exporters to get into the market. Um, you know, as Brendan uh, alluded to in his opening comments, the Indian business environment in terms of ease of doing business is, is rapidly improving, but it's rapidly improving from a low base. So I think it usually ranks in the somewhere in the 80s or 90s in the World Bank ease of doing business report, um, which makes it a much more challenging environment for Australian companies to operate in than if they were going to China or Japan or Korea or even in Indonesia. Um, and for small Australian companies that have limited capacity to navigate a difficult business environment, that's often a turnoff for them. Um, we also haven't had a strong demand pull from the Indian government. So we haven't seen big signals from the Indian government saying we need Australia to be having an economic relationship with us. The focus has been on the, on the political side. And this has really meant that for Australia, it's been easier to look at other options in the region. Um, there's a lot of opportunities for trade and investment with everybody else in the region, more than a small country like Australia of 25 million people could possibly need. Um, and therefore, because of all these factors, India kind of lines up, but it's a bit harder than the other ones. So West, we've still got lots of, lots of ground to, to cover in Southeast Asia. We'll just focus on that. And so it's kind of been left in a state of benign neglect for 30 years. Um, it was kind of realised in the mid-2010s in Australia, and this was during the term of the Turnbull government, that this was a problem. There was this, it was difficult to have a long-term ambition for an Australia-India relationship more broadly if you didn't have any economic ballast in it. Um, and so the Turnbull government commissioned Peter Varghese to do a big um, report on what could be done to end this era of benign neglect, which came out in 2018. And this is the cover of it. It's got a beautiful picture on the front of it. Um, someone can probably tell me what the um, name of the Indian bridge is there that's, I think, much larger than Sydney Harbour bridges by scale. Oh, sorry. Oh, yeah. And this is, it's the um, India Economic Strategies 2035. Um, the big idea behind this report was, was effectively that you need an economic complement to a political relationship. If Australia's long-term ambitions is to be a preferred partner across many areas with India as it becomes a regional giant, well, we, we, can't, we can't have a strong diplomatic security political relationship and not have anything economic in there. So we've got to do something to effectively provide an economic foundation for the other things that we want to do together. Um, and of course, the recognition that India is going to be a global power in very, very short number of years, if not arguably already. Um, look, it was a fairly uh, reasonable economic strategy and it got a lot of things, it said a lot of things to Australians that a lot of Australians probably hadn't fully appreciated at the time. Um, basically that India is too large, it's too diverse. Something that you could say about some part of India is going to be untrue of some other part of India. And so a one size fits all strategy that we've used in other markets throughout the region isn't gonna work. And so what it basically said, here's what we need to do. Um, it picked out 10 priority sectors that Australia could really would be the drivers for this. Um, we also, it also had a geographic element that um, trade policy strategies rarely do and picked out 10 priority states in India, which are these are the 10 plate. Don't try and eat the whole elephant. Here are the 10 sites to go to. And it saw the role of governments as really building some of the government-to-government -government connections that could then unlock business engagement. If Australia and India in our economic ministries and bureaucracies can get our house in order, then the trade and investment from corporations is going to follow. 
um, it outlined 10, uh, 20 recommendations, 10 which it said should be implemented immediately, and another 10 which was supposed to be put in place in the medium term. And unfortunately, most of those 20 recommendations remain unimplemented, partially due to the fact that this got a bit lost in the wash with the transfer from the, um, the uh, Turnbull to the Morrison governments, and you know, in the last two years as a consequence of all the dislocations of COVID. India enjoyed Australia having an economic strategy for its country. And it was so polite that two years later, India reciprocates with a strat an India economic strategy for directed to Australia. Um, and it was put out as the Australia Economic Strategy Report that was issued late in 2020. Um, and this is significant for India because it's the first time that the Indian government had ever put out a economic strategy dedicated to a single country before. So that's a mark of esteem and seriousness in the Indian government. Um, it was uh, organised by Ambassador Anil Wadhwa, who many of you might know came to Perth as part of the consultations during that time um, in 2019 for the report. Um, it was supported by the Confederation of Indian Industry, was the principal um, uh, driving force behind it. Abhay Mehta in the CI office here did a lot of this work. Um, and it was effectively India's reciprocal to ours. Um, it had the same political logic. We want a relationship, so we've got to do trade investment. But economically, its angle was a bit different, and it was really focused on where it was that India saw Australia as meeting some of India's developmental needs. Um, so the focus was a bit less ambitious than what Peter Varghese had laid out. And it was more narrowly focused on things, particularly around the resource sector, where they were interested, where India is interested in a lot of Australia's resource technology. So not necessarily buying Australian iron ore, but thinking about some of the automation technologies we use. How could that be used to help upgrade the Indian mining industry, which in some parts of the country is pretty artisanal and, and not in great condition. Um, a lot of things about technology and services and also research and innovation. Um, it also had 26 implementation strategies and for a document was published in 2020, it's probably not going to surprise anyone that it had mostly, most of the action items on this have fallen by the wayside due to the COVID experience, particularly the quite horrific COVID experience India had in late 2020 and early 2021. The report came out, but there was, there was no bandwidth in Delhi to do anything other than COVID. And so it's a good document, but it still sits there waiting for someone to pick up and run with it. Um, Look, the strategies are relatively well aligned, but it is worth pointing out that there are some differences. And the first thing that both of them do is recognise that the Australia's existing playbook will do resources. And so what would you like me to do? This thing. Cool. No worries. Oh, thank you. There we go. Um, what, what the strategies recognise is that the old Australian playbook is we'll start with mineral exports and then we'll build everything off the back of that. It's not going to work for Australia and India. So we need something else. That what, what Australia's done with Japan and Korea and China and Southeast Asia isn't going to repeat, so we're going to have to start with a blank page. Um, there's certainly some common themes around some sectors, you know, a particular focus in technology and things like that, but there are some differences. Um, one I'd probably highlight is that Australia had a heavy focus on education in our strategy, and this was kind of uh, inspired by the idea that India could be a big onshore student market. Whereas for India, they were interested more in defence industry and policy things, which would not, India wouldn't typically be a preferred partner for Australia in that space. So the, the list didn't perfectly lined up. And we could really see a big difference in that this was Australia going looking for the next big Asian trade partner. If China was the, the next Japan, then we need the next China. Who's going to be the next China? India could be that. Um, whereas on the Indian agenda, it was much more narrow. India is a large country. It has its own development needs and, and economic priorities. 
And we're trying to see how Australia might plug some holes in there. So there's a big kind of uh, significance gap involved straight away. Australia's looking for a giant. India's looking for a junior partner who could help fill in some gaps in what it needs. Um, something else that's worth noting is there was a big folk difference in the modalities that we wanted. Um, Australia was very interested in trade, so we want an, another export market in a large country, whereas India's focus has been much more on investment and capacity building. We want capital and technology from our partners that can help upgrade the Indian economy. We're less interested in buying Australian commodities or goods or services, um, and that comes from di the different preferences of the two countries. I would mention at the end, there also has been a politically vexing issue over what we call in trade policy movement of natural persons or MMP, but it basically refers to migration. So things about skilled work visas, permanent residency pathways, it's, it's the bucket that captures all of those how do people move across borders issues. Um, this is a significant issue for India, um, and it, it's, it's very ambitious on this and would like to see a lot more of that. And I think most people would be aware this is a sensitive political issue in Australia, particularly under uh, constitution of certain governments, and gets caught up in issues around um, migration policy in Australia that, and foreigners taking jobs and things like that, which is, a, which is an issue for both the Coalition and the Labor Party when, in different ways when they're respectively in office. So that was hard to find a landing point on. Um, but what's really interesting is what's happened probably, I'd say, the last two years or even just 18 months, after kind of spinning the wheels on this and thinking about where do we line up and where do we not, suddenly in early 2021, there was a huge, huge, huge political push to turn this around and start this working. Um, and it had nothing to do with economic drivers and it had everything to do with geopolitics. Um, and what we've seen is a number of those political drivers really emanating from international politics. Um, light a fire under that desire in both countries to build an economic relationship to gird their growing political one. Uh, first thing that happened was um, India's departure from the RCEP agreement in 2019, which some of you might know is a very recently completed multilateral trade agreement between ASEAN, Japan, Korea, Australia, New Zealand, that India had been involved in for over a decade. And at the very last minute, just before the final, the, the final um, text of the agreement was completed, the Indian government withdrew, um, largely of its concerns that if it joined this regional trade block, which is now the largest regional trade block in the world, it's bigger than the EU um, in trade terms, um, it, India would be hit by a wave of um, cheap Chinese imports that would undermine its Make in India program. Um, the problem for that was the Varghese report had said it's too hard to get a bilateral FTA with India, so we should use this RCEP multilateral thing as a way to have a trade agreement. And then India pulls out of it, so well, we've got to go back to what we can do because we can't rely on that to provide us uh, a mechanism to trade with each other. Um, on the Australian side, what we also saw was a hefty campaign of trade coercion that was aimed at China to, against Australia starting in May 2020. Um, I've just got on the right-hand side of here a list of all the Australian commodities that were sanctioned by the Chinese government over the um, uh, end of by the end of 2020, uh, which covered or in some way almost $70 billion of Australian exports. And as a result, the Australian government uh, rechanges its trade strategy and says the number one thing we've got to do is diversify. Because if we're heavily dependent on China for most of our export markets, then we're going to be subject to political coercion every time we stand on the opposite side of an issue to China, which is becoming increasingly common. Um, and of course, if you're looking for new trade partners in the region, where better to look than a giant country of similar population and growth trajectory that China was on 20 years ago. So Australia starts looking more towards um, India as well. 
Um, politically, we've seen a big uptick in the political relationship. And the thing I'd cite here was the elevation of the Quad to a leaders summit um, in the middle of last year. So this is the Quad countries finally saying we've gotten over some of the tensions and difficulties around the Quad's establishment back in 2009 and then Kevin Rudd pulled Australia out of it and that upset a lot of people um, and we've seen the geopolitical risks in the region particularly around China are so great the Quad is now going to be our preferred diplomatic instrument in the Indo-Pacific and we're going to make the Quad summit a leaders level summit starting last year. Um, I'd probably add to the list also some of the discussion over how India has responded to Russia's invasion of Ukraine, where there has been some um, criticism from a number of countries around the world that India has kind of tried to take a bit of a neutral or we won't comment stance on this kind of thing. They haven't participated in sanctions. They um, abstained during two UN Security Council votes on the issue. Um, which most India watchers know is a function of India's dependence on Russia, particularly for oil and military equipment, um, given its situation on the border with China. Um, but there's also revealed for a lot of other people that it is part of the problem where India doesn't have strong economic ties with its friends. Um, so if India is in the quad, but it's still economically dependent on Russia, it's going to find itself in this situation in geopolitical crises. And so one of the best things we could do to help India is actually develop, help it have a wider range, help India diversify its economic relationships so it's less dependent on China and Russia. And that's going to give it more autonomy in its own foreign policy in situations like this in the future. Um, so over the space of 18 months, all those geopolitical stuff ends up landing on top of the relationship um, and the governments respond in kind. Um, what I did, this is very helpful. I, I compiled a list from all of the different um, DFAT pages from the announcements is I made a list of everything that was a bilateral economic instrument that Australia and India have agreed in the last two years and there's 16 of them, which is a fantastic list because we don't have this many with most of our other trade partners in Asia and everything I've got on this slide, none of it existed when the pandemic started. So to think that all of the, all of these mechanisms for economic cooperation between Australia and India have not just been put together in two years, but during a pandemic where Australia's borders were permanently closed for that entire time, all of this has been negotiated on Zoom, basically, <laughs> um, which I think is a real testament. I, I only add this as a testament to the extreme um, attention and care and effort that's been put in as political level in the last two years to building this, to ending that phase of benign neglect. Um, just to name some stuff, there's a new, Australia's now got a consulate in Bengaluru, which we should have had for a long time. Um, a number of things that you can kind of see, uh, a lot of things are designed around things where India has a developmental need, but Australia has something to bring to the table. Um, partnerships around green steel. So this is steel that's made with, um, that, that doesn't use coal in its production basically. So it's kind of carbon neutral steel, critical minerals, um, METS, which is mining services programs. Uh, we're doing space stuff, um, research and technology in grains and infrastructure. Um, uh, one that's probably interesting here is that goes un very relatively unknown is number 12, which is the Australian Public Service Commission's Engagement and Capability Uplift Program. And this is effectively a joint training program between the head of the Canberra bureaucracy and the Delhi bureaucracy about public servant training and things like this, which is very rare for India, given the constitution of its civil service, to kind of engage in a process like that with a counterpart. Um, uh, the, also the Maitri Scholars Grants and Fellowships Initiatives, which are quite generously funded and once borders reopen should start seeing a lot of people coming from India and a lot of people going over. 
Um, and in the budget, we've seen an announcement for number 16, a Centre for Australia-India Relations, which will be a large kind of university-based research centre whose host is yet to be announced, but has been endowed with, I believe, $150 million. So quite reasonably funded as well. We've now got everything except a free trade agreement. And so this ends up, this whole issue of the free trade agreement ends up becoming a bit of a sore on this issue. We've now thrown the kitchen sink at it. We've put all of the stuff together. That's everything that we've got that you need and vice versa, but we still don't have a free trade agreement. This is a big challenge. Um, and why has it been a challenge? Again, it comes down to a different level of appetite and motivation for the two countries. Um, Australia is a very motivated negotiator of free trade agreements. Um, since about the year 2005, so in the last 15 years, Australia's negotiated bilateral FTAs with all of our major trade partners in the region. Um, in fact, the largest country that we trade with that we don't have a bilateral FTA with is Vietnam which we do have two multilateral FTAs with in terms of RCEP and also the Australia-NZ ASEAN agreement. Um, so Australia has gotten to the point where in terms of negotiating new FTAs, we've kind of run out of options in the Indo-Pacific. India is the last country, was the last country left we hadn't managed to like collect and put in, you know, the last matchbox car we didn't have. Um, so this meant it was, it was kind of the end of the line. We have to put all our those resources and skills we've learned doing 15 other FTAs. We've got to get this India one done. Um, Australia's highly motivated because we usually use our free trade agreements to get, open up markets for our exporters in areas where WTO rules are pretty thin. Um, and for Australia, that really means agriculture and services. The WTO provisions for trade in agriculture and services aren't nearly as advanced for other products. There's still a lot of tariffs. There's still a lot of behind the border barriers. And so what we do is we use our FTAs to say, okay, we've all agreed this stuff at the WTO, but there's this stuff we haven't done in Geneva yet. Can we do that bilaterally between ourselves? And so we've got a big agriculture and services focus in our negotiations. Um, Australia's also being a bit cheeky in that we're seeking a first move for advantage in that Indian market that's about to grow by an order of magnitude in the next decade. And part of Australia's thinking here is because we're a very small country, we may be able to get an FTA with India because we're very small. Um, even if we sold all of our legumes and all of our wheat and all of our barley to India, given our size and India's size, it wouldn't make much of a dent in India. So they might open their market to us more than they would open their market to a larger country like China. And that means if we can get some preferential access in the free trade agreement, we might be first in on the ground in the Indian market for a lot of these things. And that would be something that could work for us for a long time. Um, we'd also like to use some of the more advanced parts of an FTA, so some of the regulatory provisions, particularly the chapters around investment and services, e-commerce and digital trade, to try and set up, you know, to try and do a bit of things to facilitate that business environment experience. Um, so there was a lot of stuff on Australia's side and, the, and every level of Australian government was pushing very, very hard on this for the last 18 months. Um, the problem is it's, uh, negotiating free trade agreements is extremely difficult for India. Um, India has never negotiated a comprehensive FTA before this. So while it has trade agreements that have been notified to the WTO, in terms of a proper economy-wide in uh, WTO legal scholars, we call these Article 24 agreements that they're not just one commodity or one sector or one service, but they're genuinely economy-wide free trade agreements. Um, this is India's first proper economy-wide free trade agreement of size and scale. So it, it is, while it's done trade negotiations, it's never done something of this form and function before. Um, and of course, India has withdrawn from RCEP, so that means we don't have that, um, which makes things a bit more difficult. 
Um, of course, I think everyone here would know about India's Make in India program, which is its desire to build a manu a Indigenous manufacturing capability. But one of the challenges is that the Make in India program does depend on infant industry tariff protection to build up some of those companies. And so whenever Australian India negotiates, it's very hard for India to negotiate away a tariff because the whole Make in India economic strategy relies on those tariffs to get, it's not just a source of tax revenue from the government, it's actually essential for the industrialization and urbanization program. Uh, when we get to agriculture, there is also a perception in India that the country's food security relies on agricultural protection. Um, trade economists like me would argue that that's not necessarily correct, and we can have a debate about that. But the point remains that the in, most um, elite groups in India, whether they're farmers, lobbies, uh, trade officials, broader economic officials, certainly believe this is certainly believe that this is the case that India's food security, um, particularly for poor farmers, would be at great jeopardy if they didn't have very high tariffs on a lot of agricultural products that often run to sixty or eighty percent. We need that or our peasant farmers might not might starve in bad years. So that's a big barrier to overcome. Um, India also has actually been walking back from some of those more advanced regulatory provisions. So in the last 10 years, it terminated all of its bilateral investment treaties that had been signed in the 90s after the economic reform program in, of, of following 1991. Um, and the final barrier that we've had is that the, the number one offense, what, what in trade negotiations, we call them offensive requests, but they're basically the things we ask the other person to do. Um, India's main offensive request in trade is around migration issues, movement of natural persons. Can, and, and this is to do with uh, part, partially to do with India's uh, skill, skills economy and its remittance economy. They would like some of their population to be able to migrate to other countries to get education and potentially return remittances home. Um, the problem is for a country like, for many part negotiating partners, uh, migration is a really sensitive issue that they don't want to make concessions on for domestic political reasons. Um, that's especially true in Australia. And I think you probably only have to look at some of the right wing groups and the election campaigns they're running at the moment to be reminded daily that those sentiments still exist in the Australian community. But we did finally get one three weeks ago. Um, and this was after there was, there had been, negotiations had been first mooted in 2012, um, the, the formally started in 2013, they were suspended in 2015, um, and in 2020, they were belatedly restarted again. And it took about 18 months on the second turnaround to get a bilateral free trade agreement. Um, to make things simple, because the actual text is about 600 pages long and it's completely unreadable for anyone that doesn't have a PhD in trade economics, I made just this one slide, which just gives you a bit of a summary of what's in here. So if anyone ever asks you, well, what are we going to sell to India now? This is the list. Um, first column I've got on the left, there's a few things that Australia's now got in that zero tariffs, effective entry, in, effective at entry into force, which will be in a couple of months time. Um, so this is basically stuff that's now free, free range, these industries get full free access to the Indian market and they've got it before any other country. So they get the first mover advantage that we were looking for. Um, not a lot of big ticket items on here. Sheep, meat and wool, couple of minerals, LNG. Good stuff, but nothing huge or big ticket there. Um, because India is a developing country, it often phases in its market access provision. So it says, we're not going to zero the tariff, but we'll cut it from 150% to 75%, which is still a big advantage if every other, all of Australia's other competitors are paying 150 still, and we'll phase that in over a period. So we've got a larger range of industries, which are a bit more sensitive that are getting partial tariff cuts phased in somewhere between over the next decade. 
um, infant formula, which means we'll be able to export infant formula to a country that's not China pretty soon. Um, a whole lot of nuts, fruits, vegetables, probably avocados. We'll be seeing Australian avocados can make them in India soon. Um, wine has got the tariff famously cut from 150 to 75%. A lot of oil seeds, which is particularly legumes. Uh, seafood, so in a, you will now be able to get uh, Australian lobster in India. Um, a number of food pro processed foods and some pharmaceutical products. So the, once we go for a kind of a compromised position, the list does get a bit longer. Um, but it was a little bit disappointing on services and investment. Um, when it came to services, there was no new market access. So India hasn't offered Australia anything new. What it has agreed to is bind India's existing policy settings at their current level. So what Australia gets in India now, we will get promise under a treaty to continue that treatment into the future. And this is more significant than it thinks, because if you're an Australian company, you may have concerns about the business, the regulatory reliability in India. This is a treaty level commitment that's litigable at international law saying, if you choose to make an investment in India today, you can know that in 10 years time, those conditions will still be pertained, even if the government changes, even if whatever else happens. Um, so it doesn't open a new market, but it does really address that business concern about ease of doing business that it's not getting easier, but it's not gonna get harder either. Um, we also did, India also said that if a larger country comes along and gives um, something to India on services, that they'll give it to us as well. So we won't, we won't lose advantage if somebody else comes along and does one. Um, and there'll be a little bit of investment in financial services and telecommunications companies too. Um, but it's, it's a mixed bag. There's nothing on investment. So investments as it was a month ago. Uh, there has been post-study post work rights given to, so university students can stay in the country for, a, I think it's a, a year after they finish their degree. But unfortunately, it's only for science and tech graduates. So we're not going to see it across the board. Um, there's a thousand working holiday visas per annum, which is a frankly a little bit embarrassing size number given the size of the countries involved, but it's a start. Um, and we haven't seen anything on e-commerce or digital either. Um, how does it stack up? Look, on the plus side, this is, well, it's the first FTA India's ever done, but this is the most, most biggest set of trade concessions India's ever made in its history, without question. It is the most ambitious FTA it's ever done. And for a country like Australia, we're relatively small. We're not a global economic powerhouse. We probably don't have a great offer for India in the way that we did for a Japan or a China. That's a pretty good result. We've lent on that relationship as hard as we can to get the best that India's ever given to anyone. Um, those products that were on the list on the last slide, they are going to get preferential access. They're going to get first mover advantage into the Indian market as it grows. Um, uh, Australia has had to give up basically nothing to get this. So our concession list was extraordinarily small. So it is a bit of a free lunch for Australia as well here. Um, now, it's, there has been some comment because both governments are referring to this as an interim trade agreement. So, which is a specific language that they've chosen to telegraph the fact that we might go and renegotiate more in the future. Um, and I would probably point just on the last slide to those issues around um, movement of natural persons, particularly post-study work rights and the working holidays, um, those could be expanded. And Australia's intention is if we negotiate in the future, for example, those two provisions could be expanded greatly as a, that would be our offer to India to get them to come back with more offers elsewhere. So if we can do better in the left-hand side columns, if India does better on the left-hand side columns, Australia can do better on the right-hand side column. Um, and that could happen again in the future. Um, and of course, probably the best, one of the most important things, it finally brings an end to the long-running political problem of we've got such a great relationship, why don't we have an FTA? 
we've now got an FTA, so we can stop talking about the bloody thing. <laughs> um, but look, it does also a bit reflect the art of the possible. So its coverage ratios are 90% of current exports and 70% of the 8,000 HS tariff lines. Um, that's a good result for India. That is the lowest coverage ratio of any Australia, FTAs Australia's ever done. So it's India's best, but it is Australia's worst. Realistically, there's no other way to put that. Um, a, more, a more telling way to think about this is it's not especially future focused. So if you look back at the list of commodities, it's kind of what Australia exports at the moment. This is our current export profile, but it doesn't think more, it doesn't think yet about new industries, particularly in technology and services that are probably going to be the mainstay of the relationship in 10 or 20 years. So it's good for to commodities today, but we do need to still think about what we're going to do about the economy of the future. Um, which cuts to the issue about services investment, which means the FTA isn't doing anything for services investment. So we need to look at some of those other 16 sec economic agreements we've done. Um, these agreements have to do services investment stuff because they're not, that's not in the FTA. So it's not that services and investment are being ignored, but the FTA is not the vehicle that's doing them. We have to look elsewhere. Um, there's some issues around whether some of the provisions are likely to be trade creating or not. Um, Brendan, you and I have had a long, long discussion for many years about we have a zero tariff on LNG to India, but there's at the moment no India receiving Indian receiving infrastructure to take it. So will that really make a difference on trade next week? No, it won't. Um, and, you know, there is an issue that while both sides have kind of held back that those things around migration and movement of natural persons, it's the FTA is not going to increase mobility and connections between the countries in the way that I think we probably both hoped that it was going to. So it will be important to go back around a second time and actually do something on the people to people links side. Um, I think a realistic appraisal though, is that a lot of people have put a lot of stock and a lot of faith in this FTA. It's almost become a white whale for us. It's, you know, it was India, it was its first proper comprehensive FTA. Could we do it? And for Australia, it was our last big FTA in Asia. Could we finally get the, get the collection book finished? Um, and I think that kind of, the, the way both sides have talked about it, kind of overstates what we're really doing here. Um, the Australia-India relationship's not, it never going to be a China or Japan-like one based on commodities trade. And so, yes, it's a very, the FTA is a very compromise agreement and it's a modest result, but it does everything that we're really going to hope it to do in that front. There's no more landing point in a conventional trade agreement for our two countries. Um, the real agenda lies in technology and services. They're not done by this FTA. They're the future. We need to look elsewhere. Um, we also really need to think about some of the way we can do investment through other those, those agendas. Um, and many of you know my former staff member at the Perth US Asia Centre, Sonia Arakal, recently had a study out on this that actually looked at what some of the other countries that are courting India economically have been doing, and particularly the UK, Japan and Germany. And they've all taken an investment-led approach rather than a trade-led approach. So they don't have free trade agreements, but that's not a problem because they're focused on the investment side of things instead. Um, and probably the lesson out of that is the success they've had in the Indian market tells us that that's, that's really where the future for Australian, the Australia-India relationship lies. Um, we also need to do something to make Australian businesses feel more comfortable, um, as many of them did have some pretty difficult experiences in the 80s or 90s, and unfortunately, memories last. So hopefully, this will provide a basis that we can do that. Um, I think just some, some general conclusions for myself would be, look, the reality is we're the smaller and more motivated partner. So it's going to be on us. India is big for Australia. Australia is not big for India. 
So we have to look at ourselves and say, what are we doing to push this forwards rather than um, thinking that this is on India or they haven't moved enough or India's too protectionist. The reality, the asymmetry is there. We need to live with that and work out what we can do. Um, that's going to mean investment. Um, it's also going to mean commercial diplomacy. And there's been a big uplift in the presence of a number of the commercial diplomacy agencies, particularly Austrade and, and state commissioners from WA and Victoria and Queensland going out to India at the moment. Um, and that works to a point and it's important, but we also need to think about precisely what we had in these agreements over the last few years. And these are really focused sectoral part partnerships, picking an issue like critical minerals or like grains, grains where there's agricultural technology there and saying what we've got to do is work out who in Australia has, the, has some of the tech and skills that India needs, how can we bring those companies or those research institutes together and how can we do something on a sectoral basis. That's the way forward for India, not a big FTA that's we've seen what the after the possible is there. Um, and probably just government is going to need to change businesses mindset in Australia. Australian businesses have had 20 excellent years of trading with China. It's been comparatively easy. It hasn't required a great deal of market knowledge. It's been a relatively straightforward, open market to work in. Lots of other countries have been there. Um, and India is going to be a lot harder. Um, so there needs to be some real work by government to help businesses go through that journey and actually think about, yes, this isn't as this is a bit more challenging, but you need to broaden your horizons and learn how to deal with these issues because others have been able to, and we need to do that in the future. Um, so the punchline is that the FTA is um, okay. It's not that great, but that's okay. Also okay because it's the FTA is not really pushing on the main blockage. Um, what we've got to do is focus on what we can do in technology services and investment. And we've now got the architecture in place with these 16 agreements. The big question, we don't know what's going to happen here, and maybe the Australian election is going to weigh on this issue to some degree, is now that we've got 16, these 16 instruments together, uh, is Canberra and Delhi and the state capitals in both countries actually going to follow through and make sure that those uh, platforms in those different sectors do something. Um, and, you know, for those of us who support the relationship, our job's going to be to keep their feet to the fire to make sure they do. Thanks, everyone. Thank you, Jeff. Uh, as usual, very, uh, you know, both the macro and the micro uh, perspectives you've covered. You know, um, when Jeff agreed to do this talk, he, he, he suggested that rather than him talk for an extended period of time that we have more discussion time and including a bit of a Q&A between uh, uh, Jeff and myself. So a little bit different today, we're going to start off with um, maybe some pointed questions. Um, having personally been involved in, 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 in trying to, to, to trade and do business in India myself when in, um, in my previous roles, um, I, I've come away with, with my own perspectives as well, which maybe we can have a bit of an exchange about. You've touched on them, uh, but maybe we can develop a little bit more. My first is similar to your thought is this running towards FTA as a catch cry solution by the government to say, hey, we're doing something about this, right? I think, um, and, and we've seen not just in India, but with some of the other economies with whom we've had FTAs, it is not the solution. Uh, particularly when 
the industries covered have already a lot of low tariff lines, right? So one case which I'm very familiar with is LNG. Uh, LNG was in the in the in the recent interim trade agreement. Um, what how it works effectively is although on the books there is a tariff for the import of LNG, India never charges it to anyone, right? So beyond the infrastructure bottlenecks you're talking about, the reduction or the maintaining of current practice isn't going to move the dial if we continue to use that language. And that's also, that's also because of the structure of that particular sector in India and how the competitors um, are able to continue to dominate that market and not have a lot of space for Australia. One is geographic uh, competitiveness because India gets a lot of the LNG from the Middle East and India's in import infrastructures on the West Coast. So from a distance perspective, it's, it's very competitive compared to, to ourselves. But also, and this is where it gets the business environment. India has very famously been the country that has reneged on contracts, LNG contracts, very publicly um, renegotiated them um, as a political statement as well. Um, and so, so that's not going to change. This FTA is not going to do anything for that. And I, I suspect in many other of these subsectors and sectors, you're going to find the same thing. Um, and my fear is five, 10 years down the track, we won't have a lot to show for it and and that flows out from this and i think you have made the point that it doesn't also hit the areas where there is going to be growth so why is this why is this recourse to ftas why is this recourse to ftas as the kind of panacea to all trade wolves and diversity of our trade relationship there yeah. And a bit more challenging is how do we how do we change the focus to the things that Sonia talked about, like government getting involved in promoting the investment, taking doing things that Australian government typically hasn't done, which to you know to provide protection for investors, to give the low concessionary loans, to provide all those facilities. Oh, hard question. It brings me no joy as someone with a PhD in trade policy, and this is my eighth, the eighth Australian FTA I've worked on in my career. So I've done a few of these now. It brings me no joy to say a free trade agreement is not always a solution yeah. here. Um, there's actually, you know, there's the famous trade economist Jagdish Bhagwati has this joke about bilateral free trade agreements. He says the principal reason governments do them is what he calls the CNN effect. And you've got to forgive his reference because he actually wrote this in the late 90s. Do you know when CNN was like the big TV? Yeah, I know it's a bit dated. It'd probably be TikTok or something now. But like, mm. And he said that like one of the big reasons that governments sign these is because if you sign a free trade agreement, particularly he was writing in America, like this is when Guatemala signs an FTA with the US in 2004. The president of Guatemala gets to go and ring the bell at the, at, at the NYSE and shake the president's hand and get on CNN. And so one of the big drivers for governments, particularly, you know, at the leaders and executive and ministers levels to do FTAs was because they have that kind of ringing the bell effect. 
Um, and so he derisively said this was a CNN effect. It had everything to do with getting the minister on CNN and nothing to do with actual trade. Mm. That partially explains what's going on here. But look, I think if we're talking about Australia and India, it is Australia having to... Australia's taken a very uh, commodity transactional approach to most of its trade relations with Asia to great success. So to so not be critical, but we have gone through a process of gradually over two generations opening up markets for the things where we have comparative advantage mm. throughout Asia and transformed our economy and society and our place in the world as a result of that. So I wouldn't fault Australian businesses for thinking, well, if it worked in eight other countries to work in India too, but it's not going to work in India. I mean, the example I'd given, I think this one's really important, so particularly in grains. This is a big issue. And Australia spent 10 years, I've been involved in trade delegations to India that did this, that we would go there and say, will you buy more chickpeas? No, it's a, it's a staple legume. It's sensitive. There are all these really poor farmers that depend on this subsidy or this quota. We couldn't possibly get rid of it for you, et cetera, et cetera. And if you've seen the farmer protests that there have been recently against in India, which was a zid nothing reform, had hundreds of thousands of farmers descend on Delhi with tractors and beeping horns. You can't imagine what it would be like. Australia never got clever and said, okay, we know you're not going to buy chickpeas, but Australia has the world's best uh, technology for dry land agriculture to extract grains and, and, and pulses, you know, which we actually have here. Western Australia has the world's worst soils anywhere in the world and terribly erratic rainfall and the, the soil and rain efficiency of cereals farms in Western Australia is world's best. And there's a number of regions in India where poor farmers are dealing with those very set, set same conditions. A compelling Australian pitch is to go there and say, we want to do a joint venture so your farmers can produce chickpeas more efficiently and we'll license you the IP. For 10 years, we've been trying to sell the chickpea instead. And it's that old thing about teach, you know, teach, giving a man a fish or teaching a man to fish. We, we need to teach India to fish rather than just wondering why they're not buying the fish that we've caught. Mm. Um, but Australia's never done this before. And so, I mean, the question now is after 10 years of trying and failing to sell chickpeas, are we going to be able to use a grains partnership to do a technology joint venture over the same thing, which is where the opportunity lies. How do you put that together? It requires a, a different set of government action, not an FTA. It requires organising research labs, providing government funding to do the backbone work, hooking them up with their partner in India, probably having a few things go wrong initially and being able to take a long-term view, not just say, when do I get my next purchase order for the shipment next season? That's not something Australia's ever had to do before in our Asian engagement. And it's an open question as to whether we can do it. But the FTA is by the by either way. We either will or we won't. It'll be down to us and how we think about business engagement and what the modality is, not some debate about whether the FTA could have been better or not. And, and the question of, you know, what the peer countries are doing, right? So, and, and this is an, you know, quite a passionate discussion we've had over the years around Australia not having uh, a real export credit agency, a real development bank, a real, you know, multifaceted trade finance with political insurance, risk insurance facilities with this, with that. Whether it's India or any other country, or extend a, a, extend the discussion a little bit, given our focus or our stated focus of wanting to diversify our trade, do you think are you seeing any any movement or any openness to that, or is it a still a you know 
is still the, the Washington consensus view on this. Australia has never had a, a, what we call an Exim bank. So this is a government-owned bank that has money deliberately with the purpose of funding strategic international economic projects. Um, Japan has one, Korea has one, the US has one, China has several, um, European countries have them as well. And so it's effectively a recognition that when you're trying to build a new economic relationship, there's a market failure. There's a lot of risk. There's not a lot of trade. Private sector capital is a bit iffy or concerned about it. And so what government can do is they come in and can support that with not free money, but it might be a loan on concessional rates at sovereign rates or something to set up some of the first projects. Um, Australia doesn't have one. And the reason is we've allowed Australia's trade with Asia to be solved by Asian governments, Exim banks. So the initial development of the coal industry in Queensland and the iron ore industry in WA in the 60s was supported by Japan's Exim banks. We didn't need one because someone else had one and they, will, they had the money and the capital willing to do it. And we've seen the China Development Bank and China Exim Bank, some of its state-owned commercial banks as well do that with the China boom that we had here about 10 years ago in WA as well. Um, so partially what we're running into in India is we've been able to get away with like kind of cheating on this because we've always been dealing with someone else had the well-funded Exim Bank and they were the big country and we were the small country and we could let them pay for it. Um, India's not going to pay for it. They're a developing country and they do have Exim Bank things, but their Exim Banks are focused on their developmental mm. needs. In India's government is not particularly concerned whether we get green steel in Australia and they're not going to support that. And so we really, we really need to realise that even though we're the junior partner, we're also probably in, to some senses that like the big brother on some of these relationships in a way that we haven't been before. And it's going to be beholden on us to do that that kind of government shove over the line. We can't just wait till Delhi does it because they're not going to do it for Australia. And do you see a world where Australia is moving to do that? Or, or, or do you think that's going to be really hard? Or is just necessity is going to move, move it? It's going to require, and this, has got, this is something that's got nothing to do with India. It's going to require real change in Australia's broader philosophy of economic policy, actually, that there is, that some, some of you of the right age, age may remember there was this old theory of government in Canberra it was called the yellow pages theory of government and it went if you could find a good or a service in the yellow pages again this is showing age back when that was how you found stuff if you could buy it in the yellow pages government shouldn't be doing it and this is the test and so government Australian government shouldn't own an Exim bank because you can find a bank in the yellow pages private sector every our job is to provide things that the private sector doesn't provide if there is a single private provider we have no interest in it and, you know, that, kind, that approach to economic reform that we're ahead of the world was good. You know, the liberalisation and the market opening that we did gave us 29 years recession free, which is a world record. And I'm willing to bet it's never going to be broken ever. But it also meant that we didn't have some of those more strategic tools in the toolkit. That attitude remains strong and entrenched in Australia. And we certainly see that it would go without saying that the Treasury would be the agency in Canberra that is, is most non-amenable to some of, the, some of these ideas. Um, and it really requires a bit of a rethinking of some of that. This is where the geostrategic angle comes into this. And why I think the conversation is changing is there is a recognition that this is no longer, it's not just free trade, this isn't just business. We don't just want a relationship with India because, well, it would be good to have another one or we're going through the list of trade partners and we got down to India. 
but those geopolitical drivers that are behind this relationship are unique and special. And therefore, it's almost a national security investment as much as it is an economic policy move. And that's a different way to think about are governments allowed to support private sector projects in this way? We've never done that in Australia. Well, this is a new situation and it's geopolitics behind it. And, and I guess we've seen a little bit of movement on that front with the funding of Delstra's acquisition of Digicel in the, in the South Pacific. And just a few weeks ago, the, the funding of Iluca's battery manufacturing, or at least one leg of it, with some $1 billion of government money. Um, okay, I think let's open up to the audience, if you could. We're a small group here today, so take the opportunity. You know, it can be a discussion and, and a and a Q and A as well. So, if you've got any questions, please raise your hand. A short intro, and away you go. All right. I'll I'll ask another one then. <laughs> think about some questions, um, and I think maybe Prashant, you will have this in your head anyway. Um, the Peter Varghese in his report, and, and I had a discussion with him and I said I had a slightly different view, um, um, sort of blows up, you know, not, it's a, I don't know what the right word is, blow up, puts into focus the, even at that stage, and the trajectory was, 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 was quite interesting, of the diaspora community in Australia, the Indian diaspora community in India, and you know the Indian diaspora community in Australia, and what role they were going to play in the relationship. Firstly, I mean, I think the people-to-people -people aspects inevitably when you have got a big diaspora, but when it comes to trade and economic links, does this move the dial? The the, the increased demographic force of the diaspora here. I don't see it as an automatic, you know, there's no linear relationship beyond obviously tourism, family related tourism, um, education, just having a diaspora, a large diaspora here doesn't automatically mean that we're going to be trading in goods and services in a significant way more than before. What's your view? Look, it, this is this is a very tricky one. And I can see we're advocates of the importance of and this is, this is true of all countries, not just India, advocates of the importance of diasporas, you know, are fairly well-intentioned, but there is a risk of turning people, some of which are recent migrants, some of which are long-standing Australian citizens, the grandchildren of the actual first-generation migrants in the 50s and 60s, um, into kind of chattels of a, an economic relationship. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's not necessarily a logical end in itself. One of the challenges that I think we've found with the Indian diaspora specifically is it has a very different history in Australia to most other non-Anglo non Celt diasporas of groups in Australia. I mean, when my family first came here, they were <laughs> Scottish Highlanders with an ethnic minority, Catholics in the 19, in the 1850s as well. So everyone was a, everyone was a migrant at some point. Um, but it, you know, it's a group that comes to Australia a lot earlier. Um, during a period initially arriving in Australia when the White Australia or, or certain components of the White Australia policy were still in place. Um, so it has a longer history here. It comes from different parts of India with particularly, you know, certain 
areas of India that generate more of that, like Kerala's overrepresented, you know, and so a lot of Australians would think that, you know, half of India is Kerelan um, from the, wrong the with that. people so, they meet, but, okay. but, but it's not a large part of India, right? Like, like it's the diaspora group you have doesn't necessarily in terms of linguistic or geographic basis actually map onto India today because they kind of came for different reasons at a different time. Um, it also has tended to skew towards more professional classes that are not necessarily active in business. That's, there's, there's been a bias towards, you know, educa educated professionals in doctors and engineers, a large nursing contingent that's been some of the more recent migration. And uh, that, that's a great contribution to the Australian community, but those groups are probably not people who are going to, when we're talking about large investment bills, which is quite different from some of our recent migrants from mainland China, which tends to skew towards well-connected government and business elites who are going to be more, have more leverage on that. You know, the Australian, the Australian, the Indian diaspora in Australia is not necessarily tapped into the decision-making circles of Indian business today in the way that they might be for others. Um, so I think there really needs to be a bit of a, like a more sophisticated discussion about that. Um, I also don't think that there should be any expectation on Indian it, it, people of Indian ancestry in Australia that they necessarily have to do this. And I do wonder about instrumentalising mm. this as saying, oh, you're Indian, you're going to help us trade with India kind of thing. That's, yeah. I, I, it's, it, it would be wonderful it could happen, but the Indian diaspora in Australia does not exist for the benefit of our building a trade relationship with India. And I sometimes worry when political leaders talk about them in that terms, that it instrumentalises these groups. And I think I think if there are they are their complementarities, mm. like if 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 there is if if Australian you know grain or Australian whatever you know Australian product in 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 merchandise goods, there is a market in India. I think like how in China there was, then the diaspora can play a role because they you know they start up trading companies. They might they might facilitate. There might be a bit more risk takers and credit in, in providing credit facilities to the buyers, um, you know, in India. Um, but where you don't have that basic demand and, the, you know, for that product, I mean, quite a, I guess an example is, is that trade that, sh that turned up in China, of, you know, buying milk powder and, palm, you know, um, nutrition and supplements uh, that came out from originally from students, a big number of Chinese students here buying and selling it and selling it online and WeChat and you know that's it's a billion dollar trade. Yeah, yeah. and and but people I don't, sending stuff FedExing FedExing food packages home and it's now a billion dollar trade. Yeah, and but I can't see that happening with India, right? You know what's the product that we're going to pack and send? Yeah, um, you know, and and the Indian consumer, you know has a different mindset as well, right? So th those, th those kind of things aren't gonna automatically follow in, in my view. And I think there's a, there's a bit of a trope that suggests that it might. Well, also who, like, who's the, if the obligation's on Australia also, who is it on in Australia? Is it, and this is the thing, I don't think you can kind of go, well, we've got this big diaspora, so they'll sort it out. The Indian community in Australia have all these connections back to the Indian business world, they'll do that for us. I think it's the onus on people like me Really, if Australia is serious about this, it's not about expecting people with heritage in India to be able to build that relationship. It's about people that don't have heritage in India actually learning something, building those P2P connections. So I, I would worry that the focus on the diaspora lets the rest of 
Anglo-Australia like myself off the hook in actually, you know, investing in the whether or not someone is going to do full language, investing in a set of cultural competencies, relationships, and some pretty deep knowledge of business and politics that they're going to be able to operate. That's the solution for Australia, not just getting the migrants to sort it out for us. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks, Brendan. And thanks, Jeff. That was a really, really comprehensive and very, very interesting presentation. Loved it. Um, so I'm Nasheed. I'm the Trade and Investment Commissioner, newly appointed for the India Gulf region. And I've been watching this ECTA agreement, which has been 10 years in the making, but I would say it's way beyond 10 years. And being a part of the diaspora, I think um, it's an incredibly proud moment to see this interim agreement even come into play because um, I think that CNN effect that you talk about is really, really key. Um, it is about being able to say to the world that this is a strong partnership. There's a lot of work to still be undertaken. I think the future of the agreement is really, really fundamental. Um, I even think, you know, looking at what was done between Singapore and Australia around their digital FTA is something that probably needs to be looked at. Um, I think the other part is the key thing in um, into the future is that recognition of skills task force, which is going to be a fundamental linchpin to how we can unlock um, part of the potential to this relationship. Um, is the diaspora responsible? To some extent, um, but I think, you know what, it's about the cultural understanding. And I think, you know, we've got 17 FTAs. It's not just about the FTAs and the negotiation and signing. It's the opportunity for our businesses to be able to advocate for what they need. And this interim agreement was signed very, very quickly. So I think between the interim, the ratification, which is apparently going to be announced or ratified by July, according to what Minister Tian recently announced, and then with the full agreement coming into place probably late, early next year, there is really uh, a big opportunity to try and advocate for what our businesses need, but also build up that understanding and that capability of what it is to do business in India. Yes, it's complex, but this is where the beauty of uh, the international education sector, where we've got the largest source market of Indian students coming in. This is the opportunity of understanding the culture. You don't necessarily need to be linked into those networks, but it's being able to understand the language, the way business is done. And that might be a big linchpin to unlocking that potential. No. No, should we take yeah, so I was about to ask, screen, we've yeah. got a couple of questions from um, the online audience. The first one um, is from an anonymous attendee, AA. How will the green steel relationship work? Will we be exporting hydrogen? Oh, you guys put the question yeah. up on the screen. Oh, excellent question. No one knows. Um, now, I, I mean, for, for those of you who might be aware, steel uses coal in its production, not just for the energy, but it's actually a chemical reaction in a blast furnace. So you can't put electricity into an existing blast furnace. It needs a redox reaction using the carbon in there. And it's probably 15 to 20% of world carbon emissions. So you're not going to get to net zero by 2050 if you want steel and we have steel all around us. Um, and so there's this push to create new things that are called green steel, which is a whole different way of manufacturing steel based on finding a way to put renewable energy into the steel production. 
Um, one way to do this is to use hydrogen. There are other technologies around what they call direct reduced iron, where you can do some chemical processing and then use an electrolysis smelting. Um, there's a couple of different pilot technologies and no one knows what they are yet because they're all still, they've all been demonstrated at what they'd call a lab scale. So they can make a little one that works on a desk, but how do they scale up to industrial scale? Um, until the technology gets sorted out, it's not really clear. Um, I suspect what probably would make sense is for Australia and India to focus on where they've got comparative advantages. So Australia produces green hydrogen, which is hydrogen produced with electricity from a renewable source. It could be wind, could be solar, it could be geothermal, tidal, whatever else um, that we can export. It's basically like LNG. It goes in the pressurised tanker. The tanker is a bit harder. So it's at a lower pressure and temperature. So you need a really tough boat, but it's basically the same thing that you'd understand with LNG at the moment. Um, and that could be used to... Uh, firepower um, steel mills using one of these new technologies based in India to go into Indian infrastructure or indeed for export to the rest of South Asia. That's probably the most likely pathway, but this is definitely something because we don't have the tech, we've almost got the technology, but we don't have it at commercial scale yet. It's no one's really quite sure how that's going to play out, unfortunately. Right, it's you. the kind of conversation we should be having now though. Yeah. Walter. Oh, thank Thank you. Uh, Jeff, great presentation. Thank you. Uh, my name is Walter Gomez. I'm on the WA Committee for, for the Australia-India Business Council. Um, some queries. Just an observation about the diaspora. I think the soft power of the diaspora is very underestimated and its ability to influence networks in India, and in fact, across Asia, where there's large Indian populations like Malaysia, for example. Um, the other thing about the diaspora is the Australian government and governments across Australia every year spend millions of dollars on cultural festivals. So we seem to be very happy keeping the diaspora singing and dancing and doing munch and crunch. But simply, I think one of the issues is they haven't been invited to participate in the economic relationship and further the economic engagement. So I just wonder what would happen if we made more of an effort to invite people to participate in that. So it works in, invitations work in Asian culture. Um, so, and I think it may not be all of them that are, are interested, but even if a hundred were, that's plenty of people to open, open doors on potential multi-billion dollar trade relationships. A couple of industries that I'd like to ask you about, Jeffrey, that um, uh, I'm wondering where they are. You may have touched upon them, but creative industries by way of that exchange or, or free trade uh, agreement, uh, because it is so massive, so influential globally, that I'm surprised that there, there doesn't seem to be anything in there by way of creative industry exchange, which to me would have been an obvious way to open open doors. Um, creative industry going into films, TV, gaming these days uh, as well. International education, uh, where is it exactly? Medical industry, given India's um, advancement in medical technology and also ability to exchange knowledge there as well. Um, tourism cultural tourism, health, holistic health tourism as well. Um, yeah, th those areas interest me by way of their emission. Mm. So, 
So it'd be interesting to uh, It's a fair observation because they have been omitted, yes. They're not in the FTA. And if you look at some of those sectoral, those kind of 16 sectoral or geographic things, all of the things you described, Walter, have, are not subject to an instrument at the moment. This is all still on the table. Um, Australia has had some difficulty with some of these things. Australia's had a medical, you know, a medical tech agenda in a lot of its past FTAs that haven't played out. And, and I think you can certainly see in the biases of some of these, they also reflect a lot of Indian demand. Like to, to the credit to that list, a lot of these things are very targeted at what Indian interlocutors are saying to Australia, we want. We want critical minerals for batteries. We want green steel because... Tata and Mittal are going to have to do this in 10 years and we're going to need the green hydrogen. We want agriculture technology. We want ag grains, grains technologies. Um, and, and look, if I was going to offer a, a defense of the emissions, what is strong about that list is it really reflects some of the, the pool feedback that's been received from India. It's not necessarily been the highest, highest order priority and there is, has been a focus on that. that. That's not to say that these things shouldn't happen or something like that, but the reason it's been there is that those things haven't been viewed from the Indian side as core to India's developmental needs at the moment. And that, that's why the, demand, the ask hasn't been there. So we've been focused on the stuff which is, I mean, it's a big relationship and that doesn't mean you can't do it, but yeah. Should we ask Sue's Yeah, Sue so, yeah. so Boyd, um previous president and fellow of the institute um do you do do you think there will be a different there will be different approaches after the election between a labor government and uh, conservatives oh look thanks so and this is this is a fascinating question um thanks for putting me on the spot here um i th look an interesting observation i would make is that almost everything in australian foreign policy and international relations is now highly politicised. You only need to read the newspaper today to, to see issues about the Solomons being a slanging match between the parties during the election. And I, look, I say that without recourse to taking a side here. And one of the things that's really fascinating is that the India relationship has been utterly unpoliticised in Australia. There is you know, there's a big debate in, in our parts in politics about the appropriate scale for the US alliance. There's questions about what the China relationship should look like, uh, questions about the focus on Southeast Asia and whom in Southeast Asia, what are we doing in the Pacific, all of these things. There is no foreign policy debate over the importance of need to India. This is the only, that, that, and, and this, I wouldn't just say this is true of this election. I'd also say this is really true of the last decade election cycle. Um, that might be a bad thing. And some people would argue that when you have complete consensus, that means we're not really testing our approaches or ideas right. But it's not, it, it, I don't think there'll be different in approach simply because neither, none of the main political forces in Australia, whether it's the parties or minor parties or anyone else have been saying, everyone is saying the same thing with respect to India. Um, I, look, I think, you know, there's a lot, obviously, and Sue would know this is better as, as good as anyone, there's a lot of personal style involved in foreign ministers and ambassadors and things like that. And you'd certainly get a very different complexion of the, the human cap, human resources in those jobs with a change of government. So that would probably change some stuff. But in the, India is not a, it, it, there's no foreign policy debate in Australia for India. Everyone agrees it's got to get done and we need the economic to bolster what we've done politically. So no, for good reason. Excellent. <laughs>
<laughs> oh, look, look, on that, there, there's a lot of commentary around this ScoMody thing, and there's a thing on Twitter. ScoMosa. ScoMo, yeah, and there's some, yeah, yeah. Look, look uh, we all like this and have a bit of a laugh of it, and now there's people in DFAT that are paid to do this now, social media managers. But, but look, if you really look at what we're talking about here and what's driving it, these are big geopolitical currents that are pushing India and Australia together in new complex ways in the quad and various other things. And these are big questions about green steel and hydrogen and India's developmental needs and what Australia can do to diversify its trade. It's, this, is, this is way bigger than a ScoMody t- love-in tweet. And it's not, look, it's, it's not a relationship that's reliant on personalities. It's a relationship that's, that's got big buy-in on both systems and it's been driven by big global forces. I wouldn't, you know, there are some relationships that Australia's had that have been caught up in a personality on our side or their side. And if you've got a change of government, you lose some equities. I, I don't think that's, that, that's not the situation that we've got here, you know. My, my apologies. You're behind the monitor no, for me the I whole think, time. I think I'm behind. I just put it off at the end. Um, Kira Lachlan, a former member. Good to be back. Um, Jeffrey, I think, uh, thank you very much for that. It was very interesting. Um, I think you mentioned a few times some of the limitations of free trade agreements and you cross-referred back to that slide of the 16 political arrangements. But I was just wondering, during the various consultation processes with business, which I assume have happened over the years in the lead up to these sorts of arrangements, what, what sort of things are business asking for? Are they really demanding a political solution or is the reality that a lot of businesses and a lot of industry aren't in India because it's such a nightmare doing business in India for some people? Yeah. Look, there are certainly some some Australian... There are a couple of large Australian businesses that had India strategies 10 or 20 years ago that didn't go so well, though that's true of many countries in the region as well, particularly a lot of Australian businesses, including large banks that have been in Southeast Asia that hadn't worked for them. So India is not the only place Australian businesses have gone a bit ambitiously and found reality a bit harder. So what's, speaking generally, what I would have found in business consultations around not just the, the FTA, but also those broader 16 things as well, is really more like a lack of engagement to some degree. Um, a lot of the Australian businesses who are most internationalised are in those sectors where our big trade relationships in other parts of Asia are. And so for them, they're not engaged in India because India doesn't buy iron ore, so big iron ore mining companies don't really have a lot of equities in India for that reason. And the companies that do have things to the line are often sometimes for Australia first time internationalizers. They might not be exporting, they might not have had international partnerships before, um, particularly when you're moving into some of those newer tech sectors, or they might have had them, but they've had them, you know, particularly in some of the technology in services industries, they've had them with other developed countries, like they would see international partnerships as being with the US or Europe or something like that a country like India would be very foreign to them. And so a lot of what we've seen in business consultations is there's, there's this bit of the, this, this narrative that Australian businesses had a tough time in India in the 90s and they've got to be convinced to go back. But really the businesses we're talking about, if, if that's the agenda, are businesses that have never gone overseas before. Or in, they're in new sectors. They're probably SMEs rather than big giant ASX listed companies. They might, you know, these are businesses that have new technologies that didn't exist five years ago. And this might be their first play or something. So it is a big lift for them to say, you're going to 
internationalized for the first time. And also you're going to do it with the 98th country on the World Bank's ease of doing business list, right? Like it's chucking someone in the deep end to do this. Um, so I think the real thing that we've found in some of those discussions is actually, is actually really getting Australian business to, we say it's get them to think about India, but sometimes it's to get, get them to think about international in the first place is actually the challenge is, is to get them there. And then it's, so it's a very, it's a very new thing because we're not doing the commodities anymore. New room, new people, new ideas. It's a great chance for us to start again. Yeah. Yeah, 63. 63, yeah. 63 at the moment, yeah. So it was 98 five years ago or something, wasn't it? Yeah, it's got, it, it, has, it has gone up the rankings at a spectacular rate, yeah. yeah. My point being is the companies we're talking about now weren't in India, didn't exist yeah, no, in the no. 90s. So this that myth of, oh, it was bad, someone had a bad experience in the 90s, these companies weren't there, yeah. I'll, I'll put an example of a I'm willing to speculate that some of the people working in these companies weren't even born in the 90s. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, so they don't have bad memories for the 90s because mm -hmm. they literally yeah. weren't alive at that stage. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they, 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 yeah it's, 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 it's a new world. So look, well, there are some of those old tropes that I think, you know, this is about us getting out of all of that stuff and actually thinking about who these are. And it's, it's a bunch of kids with some code. Yeah. And, and, and to be fair, that sort of business where you're not, you're not necessarily requiring to go and put, you know, $200 million of CapEx in yeah. a plant or, you know, build branches. You know, these are very nimble. You don't have to, you know, you, you don't have to, it's invest in your effort more so than anything else in your networks. Where you're not moving chunks of product where you know you're you're sending two years worth of chickpeas since yeah. you mentioned it and you're not getting paid. Yeah. Because there you, you're you know, so it's it's a different business model, a different types of businesses in the new economy that that in this space it can work. Correct. And that's basically what we're doing at Speaking of Valley here and scaling up in India. That's yeah. very that, that's 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 the game, not there I said chickpeas. Yeah, excellent. <laughs> and it's not covered by the FTA. And it's and it's uh, that stuff doesn't fit in an FTA yeah. anyway. Yeah, it's not in any of our FTAs. Yeah. All right. I mean, we've we've gone slightly over time, but that's fine. It. Um, yeah, I think we had a really great discussion. Thanks again.